Welcome once again to Inside Maine, where we talk about issues across the state and across the country with folks in Maine and also in Washington to try to connect some of the dots. And today we're talking about Maine agriculture. It's appropriate because we're headed into the growing season, uh, the very beginning of our agricultural uh, year here in Maine. And we're going to be talking about a variety of wonderful Maine products. And then toward the end, we'll talk about the international aspect of our Maine products and the export of possibilities. Uh, I want to start, though, with Eric Venturini, who is the executive director, I guess that's the title, President Puba. His Excellency of the Maine Blueberry Commission. And Eric, let's uh, first, how did you get involved in, in this industry? Thank you, Senator King. And first off, I'm absolutely honored to be here. And so thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure to see you again. I guess it was about 12 or 13 years ago that I decided to, to shift my career into agriculture. I had spent some time working on some farms. I wanted to be a farmer myself, but I didn't have enough money to get into it. So I thought I would get, get educated instead. So I came back to my alma mater here at the University of Maine, trying to find a graduate program that would, uh, you know, get me a leg up into agriculture. And, and I actually met the person who was to become a great mentor in my life and my graduate advisor, Dr. Frank Drummond, uh, while processing chickens at a farm. We were standing across the table from each other, processing chickens and struck up a conversation. And a few months later, he accepted me into his graduate program where I studied wild pollinators in wild blueberries. To make a long story short, when uh, the, the then executive director, Nancy McBrady, was uh, picked by Governor Mills to serve as the director of the Bureau of Agriculture, now the deputy director of the Department of Ag Conservation and Forestry, the, the position opened up and I was very fortunate to be selected and continue to be honored to serve, uh, to strive to represent the diverse voices of, of Maine's wild blueberry farmers. Well, let me, let me ask the question that I know is on all of our listeners' minds. What's the difference between a Maine wild blueberry and a cultivated blueberry? Absolutely everything. A cultivated blueberry is an ordinary blueberry. Uh, you know, wild blueberries are, uh, you know, I would say they're more delicious. They're healthier. We have twice the antioxidants, 33% more anthocyanins than ordinary blueberries. They're a completely different species, Senator King, and they're, and they're managed completely differently. In wild blueberries, we have wild. We have Maine. You and, know, and it's they just, are it's literally, completely... they're wild in the sense that they, they, they're not, you don't plow a field and plant them every year. They're wild and grow, not cultivated. The other way you can tell them by sight is size, isn't it? The Maine wild blueberries are smaller. That's right. That's right. They're smaller and they're they're wild, yeah, because they're never they're never planted. They're they're growing where the they naturally thrive. I always say that they're the best of both worlds. They're you know a healthy wild plant, and yet when you purchase a Maine wild blueberry, you are supporting a Maine wild blueberry farmer. And tell me about the industry. How many farmers are we talking about, and and what's the what's the economic impact? And it's mostly in Washington County, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so according to our most recent estimates, Maine is home to about 485 wild blueberry farms. And annually, these farms produce anywhere from between about 50 million to 100 million pounds of uh, Maine wild blueberries. And the direct and indirect economic impacts of that production is around $250 million to Maine's economy each year. 
And importantly, Maine is the only state in the union that has significant commercial production of wild blueberries. 99% of, of the wild blueberries from the U.S. come come from Maine. Now, they're also in uh, uh, New Brunswick and, and Quebec to some extent. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Maine and the Canadian Mar- Maritimes is, is really where wild blueberries are, uh, you know, naturally occur and, and are commercially produced. Now, now, what's how much how much goes to fresh where you see the the in stores and, and along the road uh, where we go? We often see people setting up with a tent and selling them by the pound. How much is is the fresh product and how much is is frozen or otherwise processed? Sure. About 2% of our production every year is is fresh, is sold fresh through what are called fresh pack operations. Uh, and the rest is uh, individual quality frozen in that product. So that's about 98%. And that product will end up, you know, in main grocery stores, in grocery stores across the country, across the region, and even internationally. Well, the most amazing machine I've ever seen in a main factory if you will, was in Machias, where they have the the machine that picks out the the bad blueberries and bumps them off the conveyor belt automatically. It's uh, I can't really describe it, but it's amazing. And only two percent are fresh. I think my wife Mary buys one percent. Uh, so I don't know where the other part is because <laughs> we live on them in the summer. I so you said something important, Eric, and that is that there's a there's a health benefit that Maine wild blueberries really do pack a health punch that the cultivated berries don't. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, there's some recent research that's starting to even look at uh, brain health benefits of wild blueberry consumption. I'd encourage your listeners, Senator King, to, uh, to check out a website, wildblueberries.com. And it goes into all kinds of detail about the health benefits of wild blueberry consumption, well, uh, the main wild blueberry story. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you a question that we're going to be asking of all of our guests today, and that is the impacts of climate change. And, and are we going to have to see and look at different ways to provide irrigation, for example? Is, is, uh, is climate change going to affect the industry? Is it affecting the industry now? Climate change is absolutely impacting our, our industry you know, in the past three years, for example, so in 2020, we had a uh, pretty historic drought across the state. And, you know, through the impacts of the drought and uh, a late frost event, actually several late frost events where flowers were killed that would have otherwise, you know, maybe become fruit, we lost about 45% of the crop um, and had a very low production year. 2021 was banner year. We had over 100 million pounds. And then last year, Although statewide production was okay, our mid-coast producers were hit really hard. And some of them saw losses between, or many of them saw losses between really 50, even up to 100%. Um, and so climate change is certainly a major a major challenge, and it's a challenge that we are working uh, very hard to address. Um, and I think, you know, uh, drought is a big piece of it. It's really kind of where the rubber meets the road on climate change and wild blueberries. And, you know, you know, we are investing in research and, and our time and resources to try and create opportunities for producers, for example, to install the most basic of drought mitigation tools, which you mentioned, irrigation. Well, we just got some good funding for the research farm up there on Route 1 
And hopefully they're going to be able to look at issues like climate mitigation and PFAS and some of those issues. So uh, hopefully that's going to be a helpful project. I, I always see the farm as I'm headed down Route 1. Uh, head, headed south uh, out of the, out of uh, Washington County. So, uh, is that farm an important part of the industry? The research farm? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you mentioned first off, you mentioned PFAS, and thankfully, PFAS hasn't. Uh, you know, we're not on the PFAS map because spreading of sludge is is not something that was uh, that was ever done. Not really a part of of wild blueberry management, thankfully. Uh, but certainly, you know, thank you, Senator King, and and thanks to the leadership. Um, uh, of you, but also Senator Collins and the support of uh, Congressman Golden and, and Congresswoman Pingree, uh, that that funding request was approved. Uh, you know, and just generally, you have been such a champion in our nation's capital for wild blueberries and other ag industries. Um, but I suppose I'm digressing from your question. So, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, absolutely, this $3 million is going to help make what is the only university wild blueberry research facility in the country once again into the hub of research and innovation that it, it should be and as that hub it will help us to overcome critical challenges like seasonal worker shortages uh, climate change you know generally to remain competitive uh, and to place our producers on solid footing of long-term farm viability we have to address these challenges head on, and I think this funding is a huge step towards allowing us to do that. Well, and 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 one thing we tackled just last week is this: all of a sudden, the Department of Homeland Security is demanding three times the fee per person for almost three times for uh, temporary agricultural workers, which are critical in an industry that that needs people for a short period of time, but a very intense period of time during the harvest. So we're working on that. The, the, the fee idea, I think it was going from like $450 a person, the fee to 1600 or something like that. It was, it was pretty, pretty outrageous. So we, we, the delegation pushed back on that last week. Hopefully we're going to be able to make some progress. Well, listen, Eric, thank you. Uh, thanks for visiting Washington a couple of weeks ago. Good to see you in person uh, and uh, look forward to working with you as we support and enjoy the, the product of these, uh, of these wonderful farms uh, down east. Uh, great to have you with us, Eric. Thanks. Thank you, Senator King. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a minute to talk about potatoes, uh, Aroostook County, and what's going on in that industry, and uh, talk with the most famous potato man of all this year, Dominic LaJoy. We'll be back to Inside Maine in just a minute. Welcome back to Inside Maine. As I promised, we're going to be talking potatoes, and uh, uh, I'm not going to embarrass Dominic by making him say his recent award, but just a couple of weeks ago, he was named a Potato Grower of the Year nationally for the whole country. He was down in Washington, and it was really fun to have a Maine potato grower get that national recognition, and he's a member of the Maine Potato Board family farm. Dominic, how many generations has your family been farming up there? Hi, uh, good morning, Senator. So I'm the fourth generation farmer. My nephews are fifth generation and their children will be sixth generation, hopefully. 
Wow. And tell tell our listeners about your farm and what you grow and, and where your markets are, because you have sort of a special niche. Yeah, so we're located in Van Buren, right up in the St. John River Valley. We're actually the gateway to the valley. And we grow specialty uh, potatoes, mainly the purple potatoes for uh, chips, for, uh, you know, terra chips. And uh, we also grow russets for french fries. Uh, we grow a lot of seed potatoes on our farm to supply local growers as well as growers around the country. How how big is your farm, Dominic? How many acres? Uh, so we're farming about 2,000 acres. We rotate and we do have some three-year rotation, so we do cover crops as well. But in the potato acreage, we're about 850 acres and we do small grains as well. So it's very busy. So when we buy these blue, you said purple, I think of them as blue, but these colored terra chips, chances are they came from Van Buren, Maine. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. <laughs> Except in the summer months, we do source from growers on the eastern shore to supply those gaps where we don't have potatoes in storage. Well, let me ask you the same question I asked Eric. Are you seeing effects of climate change? Are we having to rethink some of the basic infrastructure of potato growing from what it's been for the last 100 plus years? Yeah, I mean, we've been seeing effects for the last 20 years, slowly, you know, drought conditions, a lot more weather events that we weren't used to in the past, you know, and I mean, the industry is pretty innovative. We've been adapting as we go, which is about the best you can do, but definitely, you know, with the future, I think water sources and irrigation is probably going to become the normal for the next generations. And that's going to require some investment. Does the uh, Department of Agriculture help with investment in things like irrigation, which is certainly something we're going to need more of? Yeah, so we're working, actually working with NRCS on uh, some projects. And so funding is going to be critical for that infrastructure. Environmental impact studies is the starting point. So, you know, we want to make sure that the investment is made in the right location and it's going to be long term and benefit not one operation, but several operations per project. So, you know, it's going to benefit the community and growers in the community, which is uh, key for, I think, for the future. Now, how much of your crop is, you mentioned, not you particularly, but the crop, the, the overall crop, which is mostly not entirely, but mostly in Arista County. How much is, is in various categories? Seed, uh, fresh, processed? Uh, you, there's some big processors up there. Yeah, fortunately, we, you know, we've gained a processor in the last uh, three years, which has been great for the industry. And, and uh, you know, our acres were declining, and now we're gaining some of those acres back. Uh, processing is huge, and, and we have the soils in the right uh, season to produce, you know, good processing potatoes. You know, we grow some fresh potatoes, not very many for the fresh market, but seed potatoes is going to be critical to supply, you know, the growers that supply these processors. So we got to figure out how to maintain our seed acres and, and you know, hopefully protect that supply. Well, I, I never want to make fun of somebody else's misfortune, but I have to say I kind of enjoyed uh, ribbing my friends from Idaho last year that we were shipping Maine potatoes to Idaho. Uh, did did they have a bad drought? How did that happen? I mean, you, you never expect to hear Maine potatoes bailing out Idaho. Yeah, that's uh, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of the perfect storm for the last couple of years. And, and unfortunately for growers out there, you know, it was a pretty big hardship. But two years ago, they had a lot of late summer heat 
30 plus days in a row of uh, triple digit heats and well, and the crop just couldn't sustain that and it, it affected their yields by probably 30 percent last season they had heat on the front end of the season rather than on the end of the season so that affected germination it affected when the potatoes set so their yield was cut back again so two years in a row of, of yield shortage and that essentially emptied their pipeline i mean they you know they need potatoes year-round to run those plants. And sure. so they're, they're forcing growers to harvest earlier, which cuts back on yield. So they're, they're at a deficit right from the beginning of the season. And so it creates, you know, a, a huge gap for them. So it, it's another, it sounds like it's more climate change effect. Yeah, it probably is. I, you know, I'm sure it is because uh, they, they don't experience that kind of weather. You know, they haven't, I mean, I don't know if there's any record in history of, of that type of heat and uh, and uh, devastation, really, in those areas. Well, how's the health of the industry generally? You, you mentioned that for the first time in a long time, we're seeing an increase in acreage. That's good news, it seems to me. It's definitely good news for Maine, yes. And, and we have the land base to uh, accommodate. Um, you know, and our soils are have been rested, so these extra acres coming back is, is going to be beneficial to the whole rotation, you know, of the crop. But uh, the economic impact and, and the jobs created by increased acreage is uh, huge for local communities. Now, how often do you have to rotate? How many years in a row can you grow potatoes before you have to grow another cover crop? So we avoid growing back-to-back potatoes, uh, you know, with all the research in the past uh, that just doesn't, uh, it's not sustainable. So. We try to do a third of the farm in three-year rotation, so every third year, and then uh, the rest of the farm is is basically every other year we plant potatoes. But we definitely you get to learn your farm and know your fields and know which fields can handle that type of rotation and which fields that you should rest every three years. So uh, once you get that system developed, you know, and and we experiment with a lot of different uh, cover crops uh, that's good for the soil. We do a lot of work on uh, basically. Yeah, it's to fight the drought is what we're doing. Um, yep. You know, well, so. I, I was I was surprised. I was up in Mapleton not long ago, and the buck farm is using sunflowers as a cover crop. That was that was quite something to see. You know, acres and acres of of sunflowers. It was uh, a beautiful sight, and and I'd never heard of that as a of a cover crop. Do you use sunflowers, or what? What do you grow uh, alternately? Uh, alternately, we grow ma- mainly oats, um, and we do, you know, a little bit of other vegetables. But uh, during the pandemic, I started growing a few sunflowers on our farm, and it's basically more for uh, therapy and uh, and for the <laughs> community to enjoy. And and everybody comes and takes their senior photos and their wedding photos, and so um, oh, that's great. <laughs> it's well, it's amazing that those sunflowers can grow in our climate. Well, it's funny you said your farm's about 2,000 acres. I, I was with my friend John Tester a couple of days ago, and he's the only real farmer in the Senate. He has a, a wheat farm in Montana 
he's you know starting up in a couple of weeks he's, gonna, he's literally on the plow he and his wife run that farm and he's got 2400 acres that's a pretty good sized farm and he asked me if i could fill in for him on some uh, public appearances he's got and I, and I said sure but it's fun to have this guy who's a i mean he, as i say he's the he's a real he's a real farmer his his, his family goes back to homesteading in montana uh, years ago. So uh, he gave me a good feel for what a 2,400 acre farm is like to work. So you and your family have your work cut out for you every spring. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, you get used to it. And, and as a family, it's a lot easier, you know, because everybody shows up to work and everybody's ready to get the work done. So everybody has that same end goal and ambition and it, it's much easier. It looks like a bigger task than it really is. Well, what's the weekend of the Potato Blossom Festival this year? Um, sometime in July? Sometime in July, yes. Uh, okay. Well, I, I want to, to our listeners who have never been to Arista County, it is a fabulous place. It looks entirely different from the rest of Maine. It's open sky, open fields, rolling hills. It's a really special, gorgeous area. And the Potato Blossom Festival up in Presque Isle and and up in that area in July is a, is a really fun time. I, I, if uh, people in Maine are looking for a place to go that's a little bit different than where they usually make their vacations, uh, Arista County is one. I was at the Arista State Park just last summer in the RV, and it's a, a beautiful place. So, Dominic, you live in a great part of the country, and um, I'm so proud to have the Potato Farmer of the Year for the whole country from Maine. Congratulations. Thank you, Senator. I really appreciate that. And uh, yes, we're very proud of the county. And uh, the more tourists that visit, uh, the better off we are. And, and I appreciate spending this time with you this morning. It's just great. I'll, I'll probably see you this summer sometime. And, uh, you know, as always, let us know when we can help. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to be talking later in this program about exports, which is part of the future of agriculture in Maine, as it is across the country. So thanks again, Dominic. We're going to take a little break and uh, we'll be right back talking about dairy farming in Maine, another important industry for our state and uh, one that's facing some challenges. Thanks a lot. Hang on and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Inside Maine. We're going to be talking now to Annie Watson, who is a dairy farmer in Whitefield, Maine. And dairy industry has had a series of challenges lately. She's an organic dairy farmer. And uh, Annie, welcome to uh, Inside Maine. And tell us about your farm and about the dairy industry in Maine. Thank you so much for having me, Senator. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. I farm in Maine. I'm a first-generation dairy farmer. Um, my husband and I purchased our farm in 2013. May 1st will be 10 years. It was his childhood dream, essentially, to be a dairy farmer, and he farmed conventionally in Lincolnville from 1995 to 2005. He had the last dairy farm in that coastal town and sold in 2005 when the milk price just got to be too low, frankly. And it was sort of the thing we would do on weekends or time off would be driving around the countryside of Maine and looking at farms and what used to be farms and what current farms were. And it started a conversation between the two of us about potentially getting back into it and what that would look like. And he turned to me and said, I think if we farmed organically, there's a real market there. And I think we could actually make a pretty decent living doing that. 
And so we went to a beginning farmer business planning class. We put all of our ducks in a row, approached a farmer who was at retirement age, who was looking to get out, but didn't have a next generation that was interested in um, continuing the farm. And we worked with him for several months and came to an agreement. He owner financed the farm for us. And we were fortunate to have a turnkey operation. So we signed papers at our lawyer's office in Camden, Maine, drove a U-Haul out to the farm and milked the cows that night. So it was a, a pretty quick introduction into uh, dairy farming for me. Thankfully, I, my husband is a, is a is well-versed in uh, operations, so he knew what he was doing. But yes, it's been 10 years. We farm with our three small children, I should say. They don't quite farm yet. We have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old. But the last 10 years has seen, you know, tremendous change on our farm. We've made tremendous investments in our capital infrastructure. We've built two new bedded pack barns. Um, and we just recently, in the past year, changed our milking system and put in a swing 10 parlor to improve the efficiency of our milking system. And that has made now, what a is, world what, of difference. I've got to stop you there. What's a swing 10 parlor? A swing tent parlor is we have 10 milkers, but we are able to load 20 cows into the parlor at a time. So we have 10 on one side and 10 on the other side. And we actually milk one side with the milkers, with the units, and then we swing them over to the other side to milk the other side. So it's a style of parlor that is sort of more, more home built because we don't have 20 milkers for all 20 cows. But it's improved our efficiency tremendously because we were previously milking what's called a tie stall, which is when the cows come in and get hooked by their neck chain, and you bring the milkers to them. And you essentially have to bring all of the feed, everything to them. It's a oh, lot of how, labor. <laughs> how often can you milk a cow? We milk twice a day, but... Most farms, I shouldn't say most farms, most farms milk twice a day, but there are several farms in, in Maine who milk three times a day. And it's just a matter of the timing. The three times a day, I think, can be challenging because you have to wake up in the very early morning, like three in the morning, to get, yeah. uh, to get the cows on the system. But for the most part, majority of our farms milk um, in the morning, you know, between five, six, seven in the morning, and then again in the afternoon, between five, six, seven again. Well, you'll be glad to know that my principal staff member that works on agriculture is from a dairy farm family in Albion, Maine. So I do uh, hear about uh, dairy farming issues quite frequently from uh, my friend Owen Hartcobb. Define organic. What does it mean when it, when when I, I buy milk that says organic on it? By the way, I always buy organic because I, I like to use organic products, but also organic milk lasts longer. You can keep it in the refrigerator much longer than than ordinary milk because I travel back and forth so much. I I have to have milk that'll that'll last for two or three weeks, not a few days. Sure. Well, essentially, the difference between an organic operation and a conventional dairy operation is that organic farms the cows have to attain at least thirty percent of their dry matter intake, which means they have to feed themselves thirty percent of their diet for a minimum of one hundred and twenty days a year. When you think of dairy farming, you think of cows eating pasture, and that's a big part of our operations on organic farms. That, and, you know, we don't use antibiotics. We don't use any um, synthetic fertilizers or pesticides. It's just, it's a system of operation that I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but it's a, it's a more back-to-the-root style of farming because we're not allowed to use any sort of man-made additives. 
in our operations. You but, are able to have a higher price because it's organic. Is that is that correct? That makes it more financially viable. Well, I would say that that was the case. The, the trend was that the price was rising. In the 10 years I've been in the industry, the first five, it was, frankly, things were rocking and rolling because it was not necessarily a, a gigantic part of the equation. It was more of a niche industry. Five years ago, there was a demand for more milk and all of the, dare I say, the big guys out West saw that there was an opportunity to make some financial gains by going organic. Um, and due to some loopholes in the national organic standards, they were able to get into the market very quickly, grow their herds very quickly. And so we ended up with a, a glut of milk on the market, too much milk on the market, and it depressed our price. And that price has essentially stayed the same since for the last five years. And there was one point last summer when our conventional guys were getting almost as much as our organic price, which has caused a real shift in the market and has made many of our organic dairies, especially in the Northeast, very concerned about what the future looks like for us because the price has been depressed and we've been weathering essentially all of these costs and inputs have been increasing for relatively steadily the past five years, most especially and speedily in the past year. And our price has not been able to keep track with our cost of production. We found in the Northeast, in Maine, in Vermont, we're really at a point where if something isn't done to increase the price that the farm gets, that we're going to see a lot of attrition. And it's not going to be the farms that are just at retirement age and ready to be done. It's, it's unfortunately the farms like my own, where we've made a tremendous amount of investment, but we can't find ways of doing any more financial gymnastics to make this feasible or viable for us for our future. And it, it's a commitment like no other because it is 365 days a year, yeah, twice it, a day. It, well, that's that. Yeah. And, and that's I, I remember knowing a fellow over in Turner, Maine, that didn't have a day off in like 40 years or something. The cows don't take weekends off or go on vacations. Let me ask you quickly about uh, PFAS, which has become a big issue in Maine. We're trying to do research on it. We're trying to figure out how to how to cope with it. Talk to me about how that issue is impacting the industry. Sure. It's had a tremendous impact on the industry, of course, and Maine is really at the forefront of research and you know innovation in terms of how we're going to handle this issue, because it's not a Maine-only issue. It is, of course, something that's going to affect everyone across the country, but we've just happened to discover it before everyone else. Our dairy farms are, are feeling the, the stress of PFOS at the forefront of, of their minds, because it's something that while the state did sanction the spreading of sludge, I think farmers feel a real um, sense of responsibility for something that they may, they may or may not have done. Um, uh -huh. And it's really all about the, the nutrients that, that the, the spreading of sludge actually provided. That was the reason for behind doing it, because nutrients are so difficult to find and to access in our state that to cut out an entire nutrient base it makes it even more difficult to continue farming. And so I think there's this issue of, of people losing their farms due to PFOS, but there's also the issue of losing a nutrient that is sorely needed. And so I think being able to find a way 
to clean our nutrient base, I think, is, is the most important thing so that we're not causing any more damage because because farmers don't ever want to do any damage. They, you know, steward the oh. land or dairy farmers steward 700,000 acres of, you know, fields, pastures, and cropland. And so we want to produce a safe product that is, you know, we're able to feed our neighbors with, and that's, I think, the most important thing. The University of Maine got a lot of money this year for, for research on this PFAS, which is the, the, the chemical issue that was found in, in sludge. So that uh, research is, is one of the ways we're going to have to tackle this. Well, Annie, thank you so much uh, for, for being with us. Uh, Annie Watson, organic dairy farmer in uh, Whitefield, Maine. Thanks for the commitment and what these farms, your farm, uh, contributes to Maine, both in terms of the economy, but just the culture of the place. And I have to tell you one funny story as I leave. I I was on a bus once with a friend from Manhattan who had grown up in New York, spent all his life there. We were up in Vermont. Uh, we drove by a field full of cows and he looked out the window and said, look, wild cows. He'd never seen a cow before in the, you know, out in a field. And I've, I've never forgotten that to me. That sort of summarized his uh, rather narrow view of nature. But in any case, Annie Watson, thanks for being with us. Stay with us on Inside Maine. We'll be back in a minute and talking to Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa about national agriculture issues and particularly about the potential for exporting. I'm going to leave you with one number, and you'll have to puzzle about it until we get back, and that number is 5%. See you in a minute. Stay with us on Inside Maine. Welcome back to Inside Maine. We've been talking about Maine agricultural products, potatoes, blueberries, dairy products. And now we're going to talk a little bit about the national picture on agriculture. And who better to join us than Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa? Uh, Senator Ernst grew up on a farm herself, and she's very active in the Senate. And she and I have worked together on the Armed Services Committee. And we're now working together on increasing funding for promoting exports of agricultural products. Why don't we start there, Joni? To me, this just makes common sense. Oh, of course, Angus, and thank you so much. Yes, I grew up on a farm in southwest Iowa, and Iowa agriculture is a little bit different than Maine agriculture, but it's all agriculture. Of course, on my family farm, we had soybeans and corn and hogs. And of course, some folks might know I helped my dad castrate hogs, uh, which <laughs> yeah, is something yeah. that featured prominently in your first campaign, as I recall. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, Iowa has some of the best, you know, soil in the world, and we have the best stewards and our growers and producers. And so, it's really wonderful. And, and you're right. Um, we are working on a project together, the Expanding Agricultural Exports Act. And I think this is a really great bipartisan bill for us. Well, the way I start speeches about this is to look at the audience and say 5%. In fact, I said this to the potato board when they were in Washington, and they all look at me sort of puzzled. What's he talking about 5%? 5% is the portion of the world's population that lives in North America. And that means 95% of the market is someplace else. So if we're not trying to tap that 95% of the market, we're making a big mistake. And 
actually, my staff gave me some data. The bill we proposed to increase the funding for marketing, they're expecting a $24 return for every dollar invested. So it's a pretty good high return and will enable our producers, whether they're in Maine or Iowa or across the country, to sell more product. Yeah, I love it, Angus. Um, so the bill that we're working on for your listeners, it's, it extends the market access programs and the foreign market development program. And these are really critical. A lot of my Iowa farmers really love these programs. They're, they have strong commodity markets and export opportunities to continue to really add value to their bottom line and our state's economies. And, uh, you know, the staff had pulled together some of our top exports from the United States. And this is through USDA, some of the information. But pork, which is really important to Iowa, we export $2.7 billion worth of pork. For wow. soybeans, it's $3.7 billion. I mean, that's one of our top export products. In corn, it's $3.1 billion. So, I mean, there's a lot going on uh, with these exports. And, you know, our farmers are feeding and fueling the world. And these programs help us do that. Now, I have to tease you a little bit. Back in the day when I was governor with your governor for life, Terry Branstead, <laughs> we, got, we got into a fun thing about what was really the most important white meat, whether it was lobster or pork. And, uh, you know, the other white meat. And uh, but it was uh, it was a good natured uh, rivalry. By the way, is Terry still the governor? He is not the governor. He unbelievable took a, took a hiatus and went to be ambassador to China. Uh, oh, that's right. Yes. But um, but came back to Iowa. He's still living in Iowa and really actively engaged in a number of these issues. You know, he's a huge supporter of our ag industry and our farmers. Well, is agriculture the biggest business in Iowa? I, I always think of it as an agriculture state, not, not a lot of manufacturing, although I know you do have some. Yes, we do. And you're right. You're absolutely correct, Angus. We have over 800,000 jobs in Iowa that are tied directly to agriculture and the ag economy has over $204 billion of economic output and an export value of $6.56 billion. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Now, one of the things when I was talking with our f folks in Maine, all of them talked in one way or another about climate change and changing weather and climate for growing and, and the necessity of, of developing additional irrigation capacity. Do you, is that an issue in Iowa? It is an issue in, in Iowa. And that's why I'm, I'm so engaged on the Senate Ag Committee in the area of conservation. Uh, and I graduated from Iowa State University and Iowa State is a leader in ag innovation and research when it comes to conservation, manufacturing, and production. And so we have this new generation of young and beginning farmers, that next generation that's bringing in conservation practices and new technology to our farm fields. It's very, very important. Um, we all know and understand that we can't make more dirt. 
And so, <laughs> uh, you know, Iowans are learning to be very good stewards of the land. And research and development is so important in this area. Iowa State does a great job. But I tell you, we're developing these future leaders that really care about healthy soils and water and, and uh, clean air that we can breathe. And I'm glad that we're able to support through the conservation title and the Ag Bill. It's interesting you should mention that because in Maine, for the first time in memory, the average age of our farmers is going down. We've got a lot of new young farmers coming in, and that, that wasn't true for many years. Is that that similar thing happening out there? It is similar. Um, we used to have a joke about being a young farmer in Iowa when the, a young farmer was, you know, between 60 and 65 years of age. Right. Uh, but, we, but we do have this great group of youth that are interested in carrying on their family's legacy. You know, we just have generations in Iowa that are tied to family farms, and it's really exciting to see that. Well, you, you mentioned you're on the Agriculture Committee, uh, and this is the Farm Bill year. For our listeners, uh, the Farm Bill, a, a Farm Bill, is only done every five years, and the last one was in 2018. Uh, what are the prospects? Is the committee gearing up to bring a bill to the floor this year? Yes, we are working very hard on this, Angus. And and we have, of course, uh, Senators uh, Debbie Stabenow, who is the chairwoman, and the ranking member is John Bozeman, Debbie being from Michigan and John being from Arkansas, also very important ag states. And they are bound and determined to get a farm bill done. So we are hoping to see that pushed out this year. It could bleed over into 2024, but the goal would be to have it done this year. And we've already started bringing witnesses in front of the Ag Committee and hearing on the different titles of the bill, whether it's food assistance, conservation, you name it, rural development, all very, very important pieces to the Farm Bill. Well, it, it's always an important bill, and we've always made it in the past. I certainly hope they make it. I, I, I don't know about you, but I'd like to see as much done this year as possible so we're not trying to do big bills in the presidential year. Uh, yeah. Who, who yeah. knows what the politics are going to look like then. But hopefully uh, John, and, uh, John and Debbie have worked very well together in the past, and, and Debbie has announced she's not running again in 2024, so I think she has an especial uh, motivation to, to make this work. Yes, we would love to see this done and, of, of course, be a successful final year, year or two in Congress for Debbie Stabenow. She's worked very hard. She works in such a bipartisan manner. We do get concerned. There are some challenges that might come up uh, as we're trying to pass the farm bill. One of those hurdles that we face when we do talk about the farm bill, it's not, you know, necessarily Democrats versus Republicans, but more rural versus urban. Yeah. And so, of course, during the hearings, you know, I, I want to be a voice for our Iowa agriculture, but also for Iowans who are living in our most rural areas that are directly impacted by the farm bill. So we've got some work to do. But again, it's normally a very, very bipartisan exercise. That's great. That's great. And the, I have exactly the same feeling about rural areas. I'm excited about 
bringing broadband to rural areas, partially through agriculture programs, but through the infrastructure bill and a lot going on to revitalize rural America. And I think that's one of the things you and I can certainly work on together. I want to end, Joni, by inviting you to Maine to see our agriculture. I'll, I'll see that you get uh, a couple of those uh, delicious lobsters. And we can also visit Bath Ironworks and uh, see the work of our uh, Armed Services Committee. So uh, oh, I love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you out here. I love that, Angus. <laughs> and I'd love to have some blueberry pancakes or blueberry muffins too. There you go. I can make that happen. I can absolutely make that happen. Joni, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, look forward to working with you and we're going to get some good things done this year. Oh, absolutely, Angus. And thank you so much for being such a great partner on so many different areas. Oh, thank you. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks again for joining us on Inside Maine. We've looked at agriculture both in Maine and across the country, and uh, we'll see you next time. This is Angus King. Take it easy out there.